Hey there, this is Jeff Dixon. I'm the pastor of Word of Life Miami in Miami, Oklahoma, and this is our podcast. And this week, we wrap up our series, The Journey. Now, last week, we thought we were wrapping it up, but this week, God had something else in store, and we had what we're going to call the encore. I hope this message inspires you. I hope it encourages you. I hope it helps you live your life more after the things of God. Enjoy. We've talked through this series about thriving. We've talked about unity. We've talked about all kinds of things about the, the surroundings elevating above what we're... Us elevate, of elevating, it's hard for me to say, elevating above our surroundings. But I feel like it's been implied, but we haven't talked specifically about God moving in the wilderness. So I want to talk about how God moves in the wilderness. And I want to talk about the fact that He is ordained. He has put in motion for something to happen here in the wilderness. Looking at our theme scripture in John chapter 14, verses 5 through 6, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we discovered that on this journey, we wind up in the wilderness with knowing the destination is the Father. But ultimately, I am convinced that we find the Father in the wilderness. We meet the King. We meet Him really in the depths, in the place of barrenness. And However, He doesn't cause stuff to happen around us that are contrary to blessing upon our life. He does find ample opportunity to reveal Himself in this place that we call Wilderness, And I like what's written in the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. A minor prophet found in the Old Testament, the message translation, or, or paraphrase, whatever you want to call it, says it in a way that just brings it to life. And he says the prophet here in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, he says, Though the cherry trees don't blossom... And the strawberries don't ripen. Does this sound like a barren place? Does this sound like the wilderness? Does this sound like maybe northeastern Oklahoma? Though the apples are worm-eaten and the wheat feels stunted. Though the sheep pens are sheepless and the cattle barns empty. Listen to this response. Though my circumstances around me look like crap, is the Jeff paraphrase. It says, I'm singing joyful praise to God. I'm turning cartwheels of joy to my Savior God, counting on God's rule to prevail. I'm taking heart and gain strength. I run like a deer. I feel like I'm king of the mountain. What's going on here? Did you just catch the picture that he painted that the trees aren't in Bloom. The strawberries aren't ripening. I, we planted strawberries in our garden and didn't get... The only strawberries we got were the ones that were on the plant when we planted them. And they tasted nasty. And then we didn't get a single strawberry after that. Nothing worse than grabbing an apple and biting into it and wishing you hadn't. 
I fixed something over here real quick. You hear it going bling, bling. I have a phone that doesn't want to charge today. Oh, we're at 27%. That's better than zero when we started. <coughs> the other day I was, I was actually riding around with uh, Sergeant Ron Shirley at the Ottawa County Sheriff's Department, and we were, it was, have you ever just sat out in, out in the country and watched deer run? It's pretty amazing. Of course, you're like, they don't run very far. <laughs> Take them. Who, do you deer hunt? One of these days, maybe. I, I hate to deer hunt, mainly because I've never been, but because I don't like the meat, and I hate to hunt something that I'm not going to eat. I know, you've never had the way I prepare it. Well, good well, good luck. I'll try it. I'll try it again. But, so, Shirley and I are sitting out there um, way, way up near Five Mile. So, if you all don't know, it's way up northeast. Almost, we had to leave the state twice to get there. We're coming, actually, we're coming back. We're up on about 40 Road, way up there by Spook Light. And we're sitting there, getting ready to turn, and we're facing south, and we look out, and in this field are two young deer. I don't know what they were. Buck, bow, I don't know, boys, girls, male, female, I don't know. See, that's how smart I am. I've just tuned out all of the hunters. They're like, I can't listen to him anymore. But anyway, they were deer, and it was the wildest thing I've ever seen. They were as graceful as can be, and they were just running through the fields. It was beautiful. And they came to a fence. And they like came up to it and just from a stance it was bloop, bloop. It was unbelievable. But th think about this. I feel like a de deer. I'm king of the mountain. Do you think they felt like they were the stud? I mean, I don't know. I don't think they... I, I'm trying to personify a deer for just a moment. Uh, they were frolicking I, I, we, us, us men we don't frolic but they were they weren't affected by their surroundings they weren't affected by the circumstances that they were going through in a sense I wonder if in their innate whatever God created being they were somehow maybe they weren't consciously saying oh praise God but they were in the way they were created, praising their creator in the way they were responding to their surroundings. Now, I don't know about you, but I am highly affected by my surroundings. I'll, I'll, I'll just, can I be real for a moment? When no one shows, we've had a couple of Sundays when it was just Vanessa me and the kids here. That affects me. Dramatically. And it shouldn't. When I look at my bank account and it looks like these unripened strawberry plants or these worm-eaten, where'd they go? Or stunted wheat fields. I don't find it easy to sing praises. Do you? Do you? But I see a picture here of someone that is not at all affected by their surroundings. I see a picture here of somebody that is affected by the goodness of God. You see, this world that we live in is affected by sin. 
And therefore, garbage sneaks in. Garbage is something we have to deal with. But the world in which I actually get to occupy that is not affected by this world around me, and what I mean is the kingdom world that I get to occupy as part of my devotion to my king, the time that I spend in worship, the time that I spend in, in pursuing God, isn't affected by those things. And it dramatically affects my approach to him. And I get to come in and not be affected at all by the negative bank account, the sickness in my life, the fill-in-the-blank that doesn't seem to be a positive in our lives. So I want us to think clearly about the fact that in this wilderness, there's got to be some aspect of turning cartwheels of joy, as it says here, to my Savior God, a move of God in my life. So I want to spend the next few minutes looking at a story, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. You'll learn that it's always my favorite story in the moment. Um, but I remember writing a, an essay on this at ORU that I got marked bad on. Forget that. We're going to work with a teacher. Actually, it was an intern. Didn't even know what they were talking about. I knew more about... Anyway, about this story, but... There's something about this story that I've never seen until last night. I don't want to talk about it for a little bit. We're going to look about God moving in the wilderness. So this is out of 2 Kings chapter 4. And we're going to look at Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Did you just read about this or something recently? Aaron's like, oh, 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 oh. oh cool. Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Now, Elisha is a prophet, follows Elijah. It's, con it's said that he, in the Bible, that he carried a double portion. Elijah did some great and mighty miracles in the Old Testament. And Elisha came in and he carried a double portion. He had a, a greater anointing than even one that was pretty crazy about some of the exploits, some of the great things that he did for God. And here's this opening. He's known, this Elisha is known among the land to be a man of God. He's known to speak on behalf of God, to prophesy. He's a major prophet. And it says in verse 8, One day Elisha went to the Shunem, where a well, went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there and eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And one day he came there and he turned to the chamber and he rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call the Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him and she said to him, Say now to her, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is it or what is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? You see, this man was the, the mouthpiece from God to the king of their land. This was a significant person. Would you have a word spoken on behalf of the king, commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. We can figure out what that means without getting too awkward and he said call her and when he called her 
she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And, he, and she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time following the spring as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown old, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. What a terrible story. And she went up and laid him on the bed, and the man of God, uh, and on the bed of the man of God, and she shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? And it is neither a new moon or Sabbath. And she said, All is well. Look to somebody next to you and say, All is well. Did it look like, did the picture look like all is well? No. Is it sometimes important to look at someone and say, All is well? Yes. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge this. Why am I having to deal with this? I did not ask for this. I like what was coming, but now I've got to deal with this grief. I've got to find where I just... Where was I? Oh, I did not say, do not deceive me. In verse 29, he said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you live yourself, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound of or life or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came to the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. Now, he dead. Just want to make that clear. He dead. He'd been dead for a little bit. There's no sign of life. He's not sleeping. He dead dead. Okay? Did I make myself clear? The scripture make itself clear? Yes. He dead. There's no sign of life. So when so he went in and he shut the door behind the two of them and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child. Now get the picture of what he's doing. He lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. So basically, it's he's laying across the child just as the child is laying. So you got the picture? Okay. And it says here, the flesh of the child became warm. So we also know that not only he dead, he cold. He cold dead. And now he dead warm. Okay. Then he got up again, and he walked at once in verse 35, back and forth in the house. And he went up, and he stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times. I find it interesting that seven is the number of completion. And here he is, he's sneezing seven times. And the child opened his eyes. 
Then he summoned Gehazi and he said, Call the Shinnamite. So he called her, and when she came into him, he said, Pick up your son. She carried, she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. I think it's interesting also that we've got this woman that when she first met the prophet this in this story at the end, she fell at his feet in bitter distress, right? And Gehazi came to push her away, and the prophet said, Leave her be. And then... The prophet's come, he has performed some kind of a mighty miracle, and now that she shows up, she sees her son alive, and this time she falls at his feet, bowing to the ground. This is not longer in bitter distress, but in a place of gratitude and, well, maybe a little bit more than gratitude. This is a big deal. Then she picks up her son as he tells her to do, and she goes out. So, imagine situation, woman, no son for husband, Woman now son for husband. Woman now son no son for husband. Woman now son for husband. Can you imagine the back and forth, the 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 moment of excitement, the moment of distress, now the moment of excitement. Now I want to point out some things, some observations from this story that will show us how God moves in our land of wilderness. A moment of observation, just five points of observation where God moves on our behalf. And the very first observation about a move of God that I'm going to pull, extrapolate, that's a fun word, extrapolate from this story is that we must prepare a place of encounter. You see, God isn't going to just show up. Now, He can. He's more than welcome to just show up and do something pretty incredible, but I'm going to tell you that He's going to show up and do something pretty incredible when we prepare a place for that move. We must prepare a place of encounter. And where do I get this from? It's from verse 10 in this story. Remember, we started in verse 8 where the prophet is coming by, and they say now in verse 10 where the woman and her husband meet, and they say, Let us make a small room in the roof of the walls and put therefore for him a bed, table, and chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And on that day he came there, he turned into the chamber, and he rested there. You see, they prepared something whereby he would have a place to rest, but in doing so, he had a moment in which he wanted to repay their efforts for him, and it opened up the door for a move in their lives. Now, God does not move based on our works. He moves based on our preparation. Now, there's a big difference between that, because God doesn't save me because I'm good enough. God saves me, and then he does a work in me to make me good enough. Do you see there's a difference there? I'm not saved by what I do, but let what I do show that I'm saved. Okay? So he doesn't give us a gift of salvation based on merit. But I will tell you this, not by any works that we should do, but there is a moment of preparation for the king to move. Let me put it in another picture. After service today, you all are invited over to our house for potato soup. Except for those that are online, you have to be present to come for lunch. So make that a part of effort so that you can be here live with us on Sunday morning. But you're going to come to our house for lunch. And you can show up, and if I didn't do any preparation, lunch is going to suck. Can I say it that way? You're going to have to fend for yourself. You might have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something. But there's an element of preparation that takes place whereby you show up and you partake of something pretty incredible. Incredible. 
And that's how it works with the move of God, where we have to do some form of a preparation whereby He can fill us with something that we can partake of. See, it's not based on me being good enough for Him to move. It's based on me preparing a table whereby He can set the stage to do something pretty incredible. Are you following what I'm saying? Are you, as a friend of mine used to say, smelling what I'm stepping in? Okay, so I want to move on from that. Though we have to prepare a place. You know what? I don't want to move on from that because I want to address some things. How do we prepare a place for God to move in this place? Part of it is centered with the first half hour of what we did in our service today through a method of singing songs to Him. I, I talk about that we don't, usher or ask him to move in this place because he's already here but we can still usher in some form of a movement he might be in the room but we need to do something to get him to start to move amongst us in the room so we open up the stage through songs through singing through praise and through worship and that sets the stage we might even come with a mode of expectation for god does like to move inside the realm of our expectation and i want to encourage you next time we come together what do you expect God to do in this place? Maybe you open up the morning as you wake up and you say, God, I'm dealing with this, this, and this. And God, I really would like you to address those things in my life. That's an expectation that you put before him for him to move. Maybe it is as simple as this. My expectation for today is to give you everything that I've got. And the Bible says if you draw near to him, your expectation is give you everything I've got. He will draw near to you. Now, I'm going to tell you, we can't take everything that he's got and live. We just can't. But boy, he can give us a portion, a portion that will mess with us just a little bit. Maybe mess with us a lot. And I'm okay. I'm okay with getting to a place in worship where I'm like, okay, God, I can't take any more of this. Not because it stinks, but because it's so awesome and it's so... Oh. I remember when we first started doing services here. We, we did the song, Yours. It's by Elevation Worship. Maybe one of my favorite songs because it taps into a, a New Testament picture of what worship in heaven is going to look like or sound like. And I don't mean sound like they know what it sounds specifically. I'm talking about the verbiage, the words. The Bible describes what the angels will sing in heaven, and it types, taps into some of those words. And uh, we got done worshiping with that song, and it was so over, and we, I, I went to talk, and my lips were numb. I don't know if it was a blood pressure issue, or I sang so hard that all the blood had rushed to my lips, or what, but... I'm just going to say that I encountered a presence of God so strong that he was manifesting in a way that I just couldn't talk for a moment. I think he was just saying, shut up for a minute. You don't have to be in control. Just let me do something for a minute. But my lips were so numb and my tongue didn't want to work. And eventually I got the feeling back in my lips and tongue and we had an awesome service still and I was able to preach a message and it was good. But there comes a point where when we set that stage that his presence can so overfill us and overcome us. And I can't wait for the day that everyone in this room hearing my voice and online hearing my voice can say, I know what you're talking about. Observation number two, I've got to move on or we won't get to lunch. We'll get to dinner. This is crucial. This is something that we've got to understand as a church. We've got to get there together, and that's this. God's move 
is for the next generation. Now, we get, to, we get to enjoy it. We get to partake of it. But it isn't just for us. It's for the next generation. How do I know this? Because in the moving that takes place here, God doesn't show up and say, I'm, doesn't, doesn't come to, through the prophet and say to the Shunammite, hey, next season you're going to have the greatest return on your crops that you've ever had. Which that'd be okay. God can do that for us. God can return our thought process and our productivity so that there's increase in our financials. Great. He does that. But in this moment, God looks at him and says, I'm going to give you something that you couldn't have for the next generation. I'm going to give you a son. And we see that in verses 14 through 17. And, and that's where it says, about this time a year from now, you'll do what you couldn't do because your husband is old and he ain't doing stuff that he once did as a young man. And you're going to be able to have a child. If we ever get hung up on doing things that are for us and we forget the next generation, this church will not succeed or go on. It will die. There are churches all around us that are losing their ability to go on because they've lost sight of the next generation. We've got to remember that God's move is for the next generation. I'm going to move on to my next point or observation. Observation number three, the move of God will cycle. Well, what do you mean by that? When God's move gets going, there's going to come a moment when it seems like it stopped. When it seems like it stopped. Now, how do you know this? Verses 18 through 19, when the child had grown, old, had, had grown, he went out one day with the father among his reapers, and he said to my father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servants, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him up, he brought him to his mother. The child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. Now, are you saying that God comes and goes? He advances and he retreats and he advances? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying, though, is sometimes with the move of God, he's going to withhold a little bit of the point out of his spirit to see how seriously hungry we are to keep it going. Because sometimes we can begin to worship the move and forget to worship God. Sometimes we can get so hung up on the manifestations or how he's doing things that that becomes the focus and we lose sight on the giver of what's going on. And I love the Shunammite in this moment because she looks at her dead son in her lap and she doesn't lose sight of the giver. She doesn't lose sight. Now, the prophet in this moment is representative, representative of God in this story because he is the one that she goes to but she doesn't look and she doesn't look at her son and say what God did for me is over she doesn't worship her son she goes to the one that provided and in the move of God his intention for us is to never lose sight of who he is so oftentimes he pours out and then he backs off so that we will in focus look to him and not look to the move of God or not look to the 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 not the, the circumstances around us, that's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes we begin to worship the intense growth that we have. Sometimes we begin to worship how the sound sounds. Sometimes we begin to worship the physical things and we forget to worship who the king is. And so he does move in and he does back off. And I love the fact that he doesn't cause this scenario, this child's death out of being mean because we do see in the story we are fortunate that in this moment the mother doesn't see the end from the beginning but we get to read this story from beginning to end so we're fortunate in that but she kept her focus right 
One of the other observations that I've got with the move of God is many will misunderstand our determination. Many will come to us and say, back off, it's over. Don't beat a dead horse. We've got to resist the temptation to quit seeking after the heart of God. We've got to seek, 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 and seek some more. And we understand in verse 27, after the woman has gotten back to the prophet and she falls down at his feet, Gehazi came to push her away. See, he misunderstand. He thought that she had come in a, in a moment of such of anger at his feet, but the prophet recognized her distress and desire for him to do something in that moment we've got to realize that many might misunderstand our determination but we've got to stay determined for the move of God in our lives and then at my last point ish you'll understand that here in just a minute my last point ish God's move is not short term it's not intended to be a few short services it's not intended to be a week of revival and then we're over it's not intended to be just a couple of months. When we get into the move of God, it's intended to be permanent. I don't want us to get into a move of God that lasts for a couple of months or that is like uh, when, when you study church history in the United States, you hear of Azusa Street Revival, you hear of the outpouring, you hear of the, the Toronto Blessing, you hear of the Brownsville Revival. I do not want people to hear about the Northeastern Oklahoma Revival. I want people to hear that God established His rule and reign in northeastern Oklahoma and it hasn't stopped. In verse 33, he says, So he went and he shut the door. This is the prophet. He goes and he shuts the door behind the two of them and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went and he laid his... Uh, lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and hand on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him, flesh of the child, and it became warm. He could have stopped there. But then he got up and he again and he walked around back and forth in the house and he went up and he stretched himself upon him. Then the child sneezed seven times. He completed something in that child and the child opened his eyes. And as far as we know, that child lived a full life. It wasn't a short-term life about this kid. He didn't stay dead. He came back to life. The move of God wasn't just a few short years. It was intended not to be a temporal move. It was intended to be a long-term. It was intended to be a culture in which we set in. I'm not seeking God for revival I'm seeking God for a sustained, manifest presence that is something that established is here, that is established here for many to get on board with the call of God on their lives. To come to know God, to come to know Jesus as Lord, to get on board with the realities of the kingdom of heaven, to get with a realization to love what He loves, to hate what He hates. But so many times when we look at this story, we stop there. But there's something about the move of God that is intended to open up doors for us in our community, in our cities, in our state. A, a, a door of, uh, that transcends the circumstances like I opened with Habakkuk. You see... Elisha comes back to the Shunammite after all of this has happened. 
after they're living in abundance, after she's enjoying the fruits of which she, her son's alive, everything is going well. And in chapter 8, so we're going four chapters later, the overlooked portion of the Shunammite story, probably the most significant part of the Shunammite story, the most significant part that we can understand in why the move of God in our lives, uh, why we need to sustain, why we need to go through these steps that I just outlined in my five observations, and that's in 2 Kings chapter 8. We're just going to look at six verses, and then I'll wrap up. Chapter 1, Now Elisha, he said to the woman whose son had re been restored to life. So are, are we now know clearly who he's talking about. Because we don't know of others, any other story in this book where this has happened. So we know he's talking to the Shunammite. He says, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn where you can. For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. Interesting. And leave this land I'm going to call for a famine. Now, if the woman didn't know of the faithfulness of God, if she didn't know his ability to do what he did, how probable would she have been to just up and go? If we aren't sitting in a place of the manifest presence of God, if we're not sitting in a place of the long-term move of God, when he calls and asks us to do something radical, how probable is it that we're going to step through those doors? See, it's important that we live in a place of connection with God. But when he says to do something that is so out there that we're able to say, yes, now wait a minute, I don't know that I want to sit in a move of God if he's going to ask me to do something kind of crazy. If we're sitting in a move of God and he asks us to do something crazy, we know that he's got our best intentions in mind. We know that he knows the beginning from the end. He knows the outcome of everything. We know that he's got our best intentions. He knows the full picture. We look at pixels on a page, but he sees the full painting. Why wouldn't we want to trust every bit that he has? So the woman, she arose and did according to the word of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned to the land of the Philistines for seven years. And listen to this. At the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Look at the timing of God here. This is so cool. Verse 4. Now the king was talking to Gehazi. Do you remember who Gehazi was? The servant of Elisha? who witnessed this whole thing. When the, now, when the king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man God, saying, tell me all the great things Elisha has done. Would you just brag on the man of God? And while he was telling the king of how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son had been restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, oh, my lord, oh God, oh king, I mean, here's this woman and her son whom Elisha restored to life. Here's proof of what I've just been telling you about. Here's, here's living proof. This is indication that I haven't been telling you just stories. I've been telling you truth. Here's the significance to the move of God. This is why we need to line up with a true glory-filled move of God in our lives because something's going to happen when we're going to be able to stand before people of significance and somebody might be telling of our story, but we're going to walk in and say, it's not just a story, it's the reality. And at, look at this, verse 6, And when the king asked the woman, she told him 
And the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the field, from the, listen, from the day that she left the land until now. Don't just give her something from this point on to thrive. Give her everything that she lost for the last seven years. You see, I serve a God that is a God of restoration. I serve a God that says there's no lost ground. When you look at the book of uh, Joel, we understand when the Israelites came back in relationship with God after living a life away from Him and the prophet said, repent or I'm going to send all kinds of pestilence and plagues your way. And they did repent and pestilence and plagues came their way. And then they repented. The Bible says that once they did those, it says clearly, I I will restore to you all of the years that the plagues, all of the years that the swarming locusts took from you. God is a God that when we come to Him, come back to Him, come to a place of the promise, He says, I will restore everything you ever lost. And this woman came. And maybe she lost the cherry blossom. Maybe there were worms in her apples. Maybe her wheat fields were stunted. But I'm just convinced that for the last seven years, she never left the move of God. She may have left her land. She never left the move of God. When the significance of a move of God is summed into one five-letter word, why God moves... why we set the stage, why we understand it's for the next generation, why we live through the cycle of it, why we don't let other people's misunderstanding of our determination why we enjoy the benefits of the fact that it's long term Because the greatest outcome of the move of God is that we learn to trust. We learn to trust Him. And when we trust Him, I guess I could use another word called faith. When we learn to trust Him, He has it all. He has control, He fights our battles. We get to just worship Him and sit back and watch.
Well, I sure hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. I hope it's challenged you and enriched your life. I hope it's helping you live a life closer to service with Jesus Christ. Hey, if it's done anything for you today, if it's meant anything, we could use your support. And there's several ways you can do that. First off, you can pray for us. Pray as we're doing our church plant here in northeastern Oklahoma that God is totally blessing all of our efforts, but also in the area of support. If you want to give financially to what we're doing, you can go to our website at WLMIAMA.com. That's W-L-M-I-A-M-I.com and click on the Give tab and go through the process there to contribute. And also, if you are in the area near Miami, Oklahoma on a Sunday morning, why don't you join us for our live experience at 10 a.m.? We'd love to see you. God bless.